Section 5 of Beacon Lights of History, Volume 13, Great Writers by John Lord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kay Hand. Sir Walter Scott, Part 3. In 1812, the poet-lawyer was rewarded with the salary of a place whose duties he had for some years performed without pay, that of clerk of sessions, worth £800 per annum. Thus, having now about £1,500 as an income, independently of his earnings by the pen, Scott gave up his practice as an advocate and devoted himself entirely to literature. At the same time, he bought a farm of somewhat more than a hundred acres on the banks of the beautiful Tweed, about five miles from Ashestiel, and leaving to its owners the pretty place in which he had for six years enjoyed life and work, he removed to the cottage at Abbotsford for thus he named his new purchase, in memory of the abbots of Melrose, who formerly owned all the region, and the ruins of whose lovely abbey stood not far away. Of the four thousand pounds for this purchase, half was borrowed from his brother, and the other half on the pledge of the profits of a poem that was projected but not written, Rokeby. Scott ought to have been content with a hestial, or, since every man wishes to own his home, he should have been satisfied with the comfortable cottage which he built at Abbotsford, and the modest improvements that his love for trees and shrubs enabled him to make. But his aspirations led him into serious difficulties. With all his sagacity and good sense, Scott never seemed to know when he was well off. It was a fatal mistake both for his fame and happiness to attempt to compete with those who are called great in England and Scotland, that is, peers and vast-landed proprietors. He was not alone in this error, for it has generally been the ambition of fortunate authors to acquire social as well as literary distinction thus paying tribute to riches, and virtually abdicating their own true position, which is higher than any that rank or wealth can give. It has too frequently been the misfortune of literary genius to bow down to vulgar idols, and the worldly sentiments which this idolatry involves are seen in almost every fashionable novel which has appeared for a hundred years. In no country is this melancholy social slavery more usual than in England, with all its political freedom, although there are notable exceptions. The only great flaw in Scott's character was this homage to rank and wealth. On the other hand, rank and wealth also paid homage to him as a man of genius. Both Scotland and England received him into the most select circles, not only of their literary and political, but of their fashionable life. In 1811, Scott published The Lord of the Isles, and in 1813, Rokeby, neither of which was remarkable for either literary or commercial success, although both were well received. In 1814, he edited a 19-volume edition of Dean Swift's works with a life, and in the same year began, almost by accident, the real work of his own career in Waverley. If public opinion is far different today from what it was in Scott's time in reference to his poetry, we observe the same change in regard to the source of his widest fame, his novels, but not to so marked a degree, for it was in fiction that Scott's great gifts had their full fruition. Many a fine intellect still delights in his novels, though cultivated readers and critics differ as to their comparative merits. No two persons will unite in their opinions as to the three of those productions which they like most or least. It is so with all famous novels. Then, too, what man of seventy will agree with a man of thirty as to the comparative merits of Scott, Dickens, Thackeray, Trollope, George Eliot, Eugene Sue, Victor Hugo, Balzac, George Sand? How few read Uncle Tom's Cabin compared with the multitudes who read that most powerful and popular book 40 years ago? 
How changing, if not transient, is the fame of the novelist as well as of the poet. With reference to him, even the same generation changes its tastes. What filled us with the delight as young men or women of twenty is at fifty spurned with contempt or thrown aside with indifference. No books ever filled my mind and soul with the delight I had when at twelve years of age I read The Children of the Abbey and Thaddeus of Warsaw. What man of eighty can forget the enthusiasm with which he read Old Mortality or Ivanhoe when he was in college? Perhaps one test of a great book is the pleasure derived from reading it over and over again, as we read Don Quixote or the dramas of Shakespeare, of whose infinite variety we never tire. Measured by this test, the novels of Sir Walter Scott are among the foremost works of fiction which have appeared in our world. They will not all retain their popularity from generation to generation, like Don Quixote or The Pilgrim's Progress or The Vicar of Wakefield, but these are single productions of their authors while not a few of Scott's many novels are certainly still read by cultivated people, if not with the same interest they excited when first published, yet with profit and admiration. They have some excellencies which are immortal, elevation of sentiment, chivalrous regard for women, fascination of narrative, after one has waded through the learned historical introductory chapters, the absence of exaggeration, the vast variety of characters introduced and vividly maintained, and above all, the freshness and originality of description, both of nature and of man. Among the severest and most bigoted of New England Puritans, none could find anything corrupting or demoralizing in his romances, whereas Byron and Bulwer were never mentioned without a shudder, and even Shakespeare was locked up in bookcases as unfit for young people to read, and not particularly creditable for anybody to own. The unfavorable comments which the most orthodox ever made upon Scott were as to the repulsiveness of the old covenanters, as he described them, and his sneers at Puritan perfections. Scott, however, had contempt not for the Puritans, but for many of their peculiarities, especially for their Kant when it degenerated into hypocrisy. One thing is certain, that no works of fiction have had such universal popularity both in England and America for so long a period as the Waverley novels. Scott reigned as the undisputed monarch of the realm of fiction and romance for 25 years. He gave undiminished entertainment to an entire generation, and not that merely, but instruction in his historical novels, although his views were not always correct, as whose ever are. He who could charm millions of readers, learned and unlearned, for a quarter of a century must possess remarkable genius. Indeed, he was not only the central figure in English literature for a generation, but he was regarded as peculiarly original. Another style of novels may obtain more passing favor with modern readers, but Scott was justly famous. His works are today in every library and form a delightful part of the education of every youth and maiden who cares to read at all. And he will, as a novelist, probably live after some who are now prime favorites will be utterly forgotten or ignored. About 1830, Bulwer was in his early successes. About 1840, Dickens was the rage of his day. About 1850, Thackeray had taken his high grade, and it was about 1860 that George Eliot's power appeared. These still retain their own peculiar lines of popularity. Bulwer with the romantic few, Thackeray with the appreciative intelligent, George Eliot with a still wider clientage, and Dickens with everybody, on account of his appeal to the universal sentiments of comedy and pathos. Scott's influence, somewhat checked during the growth of these reputations and the succession of fertile and accomplished writers on both sides of the Atlantic, including the introspective analysts of the past 15 years, has within a decade been rising again and has lately burst forth 
in a new group of historical romancers who seem to have harked back from the subjective fad of our day to Scott's healthy, adventurous objectivity. Not only so, but new editions of the Waverly novels are coming one by one from the shrewd publishers who keep track of the popular taste, one of the most attractive being issued in Edinburgh at half a crown a volume. The first of Scott's remarkable series of novels, Waverly, published in 1814 when the author was 43 years of age and at the height of his fame as a poet, took the fashionable and literary world by storm. The novel had been partly written for several years, but was laid aside as his edition of Swift and his essays for the supplement of the Encyclopedia Britannica and other prose writings employed all the time he had to spare. This hack work was done by Scott without enthusiasm to earn money for his investment in real estate and is not of transcendent merit. Obscurer men than he had performed such literary drudgery with more ability, but no writer was ever more industrious. The amount of work which he accomplished at this period was prodigious, especially when we remember that his duties as sheriff and clerk of sessions occupied eight months of the year. He was more familiar with the literary history of Queen Anne's reign than any subsequent historian, if we accept Macaulay, whose brilliant career had not yet begun. He took, of course, a different view of Swift from the writers of the Edinburgh Review, and was probably too favorable in his description of the personal character of the Dean of St. Patrick's, who is now generally regarded as inordinately ambitious, arrogant, and selfish, of a morose, vindictive, and haughty temper, utterly destitute of generosity and magnanimity, as well as of tenderness, fidelity, and compassion. Lord Jeffrey, in his review, attacked Swift's moral character with such consummate ability as to check materially the popularity of his writings, which are universally admitted to be full of genius. His superb intellect and his morality present a sad contrast, as in the cases of Bacon, Burns, and Byron, which Scott, on account of the force of his Tory prejudices, did not sufficiently point out. But as to the novel, when it suddenly appeared, it is not surprising that Waverley should at once have attained an unexampled popularity when we consider the mediocrity of all works of fiction at that time, if we accept the Irish tales of Maria Edgeworth. Scott received from Constable £1,000 for this romance, then deemed a very liberal remuneration for what cost him but a few months' work. The second and third volumes were written in one month. He wrote with a remarkable rapidity when his mind was full of the subject, and his previous studies as an antiquary and as a collector of Scottish poetry and legends fitted him for his work, which was in no sense a task, but a most lively pleasure. It is not known why Scott published this strikingly original work anonymously. Perhaps it was because of his unusual modesty and the fear that he might lose the popularity he had already enjoyed as a poet. But it immediately placed him on a higher literary elevation since it was generally suspected that he was the author. He could not altogether disguise himself from the keen eyes of Geoffrey and other critics. The book was received as a revelation. The first volume is not particularly interesting, but the story continually increases in interest to its close. It is not a dissection of the human heart. It is not even much of a love story, but a most vivid narrative without startling situations or adventures. Its great charm is its quiet humor, not strained into witty expressions which provoke laughter, but a sort of amiable delineation of the character of a born gentleman with his weaknesses and prejudices, all leaning to virtue's side. It is a description of manners peculiar to the Scottish gentry in the middle of the 18th century, especially among the Jacobite families then passing away. Of course, the popularity of this novel at that time was chiefly confined to the upper classes. In the first place, the people could not afford to pay the price of the book, and secondly, it was outside their sympathies and knowledge. 
Indeed, I doubt if any commonplace person without culture or extended knowledge can enjoy so refined a work with so many learned allusions and such exquisite humor, which appeals to a knowledge of the world in his higher aspects. Here's one of the last books that an ignorant young lady brought up on the trash of ordinary fiction would relish or comprehend. Whoever turns uninterested from Waverley is probably unable to see its excellencies or enjoy its peculiar charms. It is not a book for a modern schoolboy or schoolgirl, but for a man or woman in the highest maturity of mind, with a poetic or imaginative nature, and with a leaning perhaps to aristocratic sentiments. It is a rebuke to vulgarity and ignorance, which the minute and exaggerated descriptions of low life in the pages of Dickens certainly are not. In February 1815, Guy Mannering was published, the second in the series of the Waverley novels, and it was received by the intelligent reading classes with even more eclat than Waverley, to which it is superior in many respects. It plunges at once in medias res, without the long and labored introductory chapters of its predecessor. It is interesting from first to last, and is an elaborate and well-told tale, written con amore, when Scott was in the maturity of his powers. It is full of incident and is delightful in humor. Its chief excellence is in the loftiness of its sentiments, being one of the healthiest and wholesomest novels ever written, appealing to the heart as well as to the intellect, to be read over and over again like The Vicar of Wakefield, without weariness. It may be too aristocratic in its tone to please everybody, but it portrays the sentiments of its age in reference to squires and Scottish lairds, who were more distinguished for uprightness and manly duties than for brains and culture. The fascination with which Scott always depicts the virtues of hospitality and trust in humanity makes a strong impression on the imagination. His heroes and heroines are not remarkable for genius, but shine in the higher glories of domestic affection and fidelity to trusts. Two characters in particular are original creations, Domini Sampson and Meg Marills, whom no reader can forget, the one ludicrous for his simplicity, and the other a gypsy woman, weird and strange, more like a witch than a sibyl, but intensely human and capable of the strongest attachment for those she loved. The easy and transparent flow of the style of this novel, its beautiful simplicity, the wild magnificence of its sketches of scenery, the rapid and ever-brightening interest of the narrative, the unaffected kindness of feeling, the manly purity of thought, everywhere mingled with a gentle humor and homely sagacity, but above all the rich variety and skillful contrast of character and manners, at once fresh in fiction and stamped with the unforgeable seal of truth and nature, spoke to every heart and mind, and the few murmurs of pedantic criticism were lost in the voice of general delight, which never fails to welcome the invention that introduces to the sympathy of the imagination a new group of immortal realities. Scott received about £2,000 for this favorite romance, one entirely new in the realm of fiction, which enabled him to pay off his most pressing debts and indulge his taste for travel. He visited the field of Waterloo and became a social lion in both Paris and London. The Prince of Wales sent him a magnificent snuff box set with diamonds and entertained him with admiring cordiality at Carlton House, for his authorship of Waverley was more than surmised, while his fame as a poet was second only to that of Byron. Then, in the spring of 1815, took place the first meeting of these two great bards, and their successive interviews were graced with mutual compliments. Scott did not think that Byron's reading was extensive either in poetry or history, in which opinion the industrious Scottish bard was mistaken. But he did justice to Byron's transcendent genius, and with more charity than severity, mourned over his departure from virtue. After a series of brilliant banquets at the houses of the great, both of rank and fame, 
Scott returned to his native land to renew his varied and exhausting labors, having furnished his publishers with a volume of letters on the subjects which most interested him during his short tour. Everything he touched now brought him gold. Paul's letters to his kinfolk, as he called the volume concerning his tour, was well received, but not with the enthusiasm which marked the publication of Guy Mannering. Indeed, it had no special claim to distinction. The Antiquary followed in May of the next year, and though it lacked the romance of Waverley and the adventure of Guy Mannering, it had even a larger sale. Scott himself regarded it as superior to both, but an author is not always the best judge of his own productions, and we do not accept his criticism. It probably cost him more labor, but it is an exhibition of his erudition rather than a revelation of his self or of nature. It is certainly very learned, but learning does not make a book popular, nor is a work of fiction the place for a display of learning. If The Antiquary were published in these times, it would be pronounced pedantic. Readers are apt to skip names and learned allusions and scraps of Latin. As a story, I think it inferior to Guy Mannering, although it has great merits, a kind of simple unsought charm, and is a transcript of actual Scottish life. It had a great success. Scott says in a letter to his friend Terry, it is at press again, 6,000 having been sold in six days. Before the novel was finished, the lawyer had already projected his Tales of My Landlord. Scott was now at the flood tide of his creative power, and his industry was as remarkable as his genius. There was but little doubt in the public mind as to the paternity of the Waverly novels, and whatever Scott wrote was sure to have a large sale, so that every publisher of note was eager to have a hand in bringing his productions before the public. In 1816 appeared the Edinburgh Annual Register, containing Scott's sketch of the year 1814, which, though very good, showed that the author was less happy in history than in fiction. The first series of Tales of My Landlord was published by Murray and not by Constable, who had bought out Scott's other's works, and the book was received with unbounded enthusiasm. Many critics place old mortality in the highest niche of merit and fame. Frere of the Quarterly Review, Hallam, Boswell, Lamb, Lord Holland, all agree that it surpassed his other novels. Bishop Hebert said, There are only two men in the world, Walter Scott and Lord Byron. Lockhart regarded old mortality as the marmion of Scott's novels, but the painting of the Covenanters gave offense to the more rigid of the Presbyterians. For myself, I have a doubt as to the correctness of their criticisms. Old mortality, in contrast with the previous novels of Scott, has a place similar to the later productions of George Eliot as compared with her earlier ones. It is not so vivid a sketch of Scotch life as is given in Guy Mannering. Like The Antiquary, it is bookish rather than natural. From a literary point of view, it is more artistic than Guy Mannering and more learned. But Canvas is a broader one. Its characters are portrayed with great skill and power, but they lack the freshness which comes from actual contact with the people described and with whom Scott was familiar as a youth in the course of his wanderings. It is more historical than realistic. In short, Old Mortality is another creation of its author's brain rather than a painting of real life. But it is justly famous, for it was the precursor of those brilliant historical romances from which so much is learned of great men already known to students. It was a new departure in literature. Before Scott arose, historical novels were comparatively unknown. He made romance instructive rather than merely amusing, and added the charm of life to the dry annals of the past. Cervantes does not portray a single great character known in Spanish history in his Don Quixote, but he paints life as he has seen it. So does Goldsmith. So does George Eliot and Silas Marner. She presents life, indeed, in Romola, not, however, as she had personally observed it, but as drawn from books, recreating the atmosphere of a long-gone time by the power of imagination. 
The earlier works of Scott's are drawn from memory and personal feeling rather than from knowledge he had gained by study. Of old mortality, he writes to Lady Louisa Stewart, I am complete master of the whole history of these strange times, both of persecutors and persecuted, so I trust I have come decently off. The divisional grouping of these earlier novels by Scott himself is interesting. In the advertisements to the antiquary, he says, the present work completes a series of fictitious narratives intended to illustrate the manners of Scotland at three different periods. Waverley embraced the age of our fathers, tis sixty years since, Guy Mannering that of our own youth, and the antiquary refers to the last ten years of the 18th century. The dedication of Tales of My Landlord describes them as tales illustrative of ancient Scottish manners and of the traditions of their, his countrymen's, respective districts. They were first series The Black Dwarf and Old Mortality, second series The Heart of Midlothian, third series The Bride of Lammermoor, and A Legend of Montrose, fourth series Count Robert of Paris and Castle Dangerous. These all, except the fourth series in 1832, appeared in the six years from 1814 to 1820, and besides these, Rob Roy, Ivanhoe, and The Monastery. End of section 5